If Roe v. Wade had overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court, there'll be a patchwork of standards in different states. Some are poised to ban abortion, others are looking to expand access or prepare for out-of-state patients. What abortion access in the U.S. may look like soon coming up. It's Wednesday, the 4th of May, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead in the 1960s, activist Pat McGinnis fought to legalize abortion. She's earlier than the movement that we know of as women's liberation. She, she's ahead of everybody. McGinnis helped change the path of the entire battle for abortion rights. We'll have more on her life and legacy. We'll hear from Ukraine's foreign minister about the state of the war with Russia. And coming up later, why you should not cut your lawn in May. It's 401 News Headlines, and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Federal Reserve's greenlighting the biggest interest rate hike in decades to bring down historically high inflation. Fed Chair Jerome Powell today acknowledging what that'll mean for potential borrowers. The process of getting there involves higher rates. So higher mortgage rates, higher borrowing rates, and things like that. So... It, 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 um, it's not going to be pleasant either, but in the end, everyone is better off. NPR Scott Horsley has details on the Fed's highest interest rate increase in more than 20 years. The central bank is raising its benchmark interest rate by half a percentage point for the first time since 2000. The move follows a smaller quarter-point rate hike in March. By making it more expensive to borrow money, the Fed hopes to cool off consumer demand, which has been outstripping supply. That imbalance has prices climbing at the fastest pace in four decades. In a statement, the Fed's rate-setting committee said policymakers are highly attentive to inflation risks. The Fed also announced plans to start gradually scaling back its collection of government bonds and mortgage-backed securities on June 1st. The central bank bought trillions of dollars worth of those assets during the pandemic in an effort to prop up the economy. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. President Biden says the leaked draft opinion overturning Roe v. Wade is much more than just about abortion. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports Biden sees the decision as a threat to people's rights to privacy. President Biden spoke again today about his concerns if the Supreme Court goes through with overturning federal rights to abortion. He said that decision could be a threat to LGBTQ rights and contraception rights. What are the next things that are going to be attacked? Because this MAGA crowd is really the most extreme political organization that's existed in American history. The president took a question about abortion rights at the White House after delivering remarks on the economy, touting his administration's efforts at reducing the nation's budget deficit. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby says Russia is stepping up missile strikes on Ukraine's railroads and other systems. They are attempting to hit what we assess to be critical infrastructure targets uh, out towards the west, um, uh, uh, electrical power, uh, transportation hubs, that kind of thing. Uh, we think this is an effort to try to disrupt uh, the Ukrainians' ability to uh, replenish uh, and reinforce themselves. But Kirby says Western military supplies are still arriving in Ukraine. In a Northern Virginia courtroom today, actor Amber Heard's taken the stand in her own defense against ex-husband actor Johnny Depp's defamation lawsuit. She maintains Depp abused her. It started with slapping um, and it got to be like repetitive slaps where he'd hold me um, in a position and slap me multiple times um, in a row. Depp accuses Heard of peddling lies and harming his career, and he's suing for $50 million. She countersued for $100 million. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Three people have been injured after a structural collapse at the former Edison Power Station on Summer Street in South Boston. It happened about 1.45 this afternoon. Boston EMS says two people were taken away by ambulance. A third person is still being extracted from the rubble. The site is undergoing a conversion to a multi-use development. This is the second collapse at a Boston construction site in less than two months. The Boston City Council is urging the Massachusetts legislature to change the state's civil forfeiture laws. Currently, law enforcement is allowed to seize and keep people's money and property they suspect is part of a drug crime, even if the people are not charged or convicted. WBR's Sarub Datar has more on the resolution the council passed today. Massachusetts has the country's lowest bar for civil forfeiture. There are two bills pending in the legislature that would reform the rules. These bills would raise the legal standard for authorities to take people's money and property and require more disclosure on how law enforcement spends these funds. City Councilor Julia Mejia offered the resolution after WBUR reported that Boston police used seized funds to buy surveillance equipment. She says it's time for the legislature to pass these bills. These are being held hostage in the state house, and it's important for us to advocate fiercely on the local level to to push the needle. Mejia says she hopes other communities will join Boston's push for reforms. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Saurav Datar. Child Protective Services in Massachusetts failed to protect a little girl who remains missing. That's the conclusion of a report today from the Massachusetts Office of the Child Advocate. It calls on the state's Department of Children and Families to conduct a comprehensive review of policies and procedures. Harmony Montgomery was placed into Massachusetts state custody in 2014 when her father, Adam, was in prison. A judge granted him custody of the girl in 2019. The report finds the state never completed an assessment of Adam Montgomery's ability to care for the girl. She was last seen with him in 2019. He's charged with assaulting her and endangering her welfare. In the forecast, 52 degrees right now. Dank weather should continue into the nighttime. Showers, fog, about 50 overnight. And that's pretty close to where it is right now, now, right now 52 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine finally warming to the mid-60s. It's 4.06. WBUR supporters include the Alzheimer's Association, dedicated to the advancement of Alzheimer's research. At any given moment, research, discovery, and learning are happening. Learn more at alz.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. If the Supreme Court does indeed overturn Roe v. Wade, as a leaked draft of a forthcoming opinion seems to indicate, abortion access in the U.S. will change drastically. In many parts of the country, abortion will be against the law, which would essentially return the U.S. to a time that Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts remembers all too well. Here she was speaking to a crowd outside the Supreme Court yesterday. Understand this. I have seen the world where abortion is illegal. And we are not going back. With this in mind, we're revisiting a story we aired in October about the early abortion rights activist Patricia McGinnis. She died last year at the age of 93. McGinnis started her work at a time when, in most places in this country, you could face interrogation by police if you got an abortion. Most people seeking abortions in the U.S. had to go underground for a doctor or secretly perform the procedure on themselves or even leave the country. Some 100,000 women every year 
this is California women alone subject themselves to improperly or illegal abortion. Here's McGinnis giving an interview on the street in 1963. I think that in itself is a rather staggering figure, and I feel great indignation as a woman to think that women have to subject themselves to second-rate medical care for a safe surgical procedure. She was the first person who spoke publicly saying abortion should be completely decriminalized. I'm Leslie Regan, and I'm the author of the book When Abortion Was a Crime. McGinnis, Regan says, would stand on street corners in San Francisco in the early 60s, passing out leaflets to people about abortion classes and even do-it-yourself abortions. How to self-induce and where you could go to get a safe abortion. So she's the first to do that. McGinnis distributed this literature partly to get the information out, but also to try deliberately to get arrested. We made great efforts to point out that we were soliciting you to have abortions. <laughs> we would go around to the whole... In order to be arrested and challenged a lot. Well, show people how ridiculous it was that... Remember, this was a time when abortion was illegal everywhere in the U.S., except in rare cases. And by the late 1950s, early 60s, local and state governments were getting aggressive about enforcing these laws. They went after providers, shut down clinics. Seeking an abortion became this clandestine, sometimes dangerous experience. They're blindfolding women. They're telling them to come to a corner where they'll be picked up, blindfolded, driven around until they don't know where they are. And they, they are alone at all times. So the experience for women seeking abortions is extremely frightening. As I pictured what it would have been like to live as a woman during this time, I was fascinated to learn that this wasn't what most of American history was like. You see, during the 17 and early 1800s in the U.S., ending a pregnancy was totally permissible under the law, at least up until a point known as quickening. Quickening is when a woman could feel fetal movement inside of her. And Regan says in the months before quickening, a pregnant person could deliberately self-induce a miscarriage without any penalty. Even the Catholic Church at the time did not condemn this practice. There were literally domestic guidebooks that described various ways to do this. It's really something that is shared information, and it's quiet. It's not talked about. It's not debated. Exactly. There wasn't this nationwide conversation about whether that was ending life. There isn't a public debate. It's just part of commonplace health care. But eventually, states start outlawing abortion in the mid-1800s. And then the legal landscape begins to shift even more in the 20th century. As women's rights movements grow, crackdowns on abortions accelerate. Law enforcement agencies intensify efforts to catch abortionists in the act, interrogating women suspected of seeking abortions. This was the world Pat McGinnis grew up in, a woman who knew from a very early age that she never wanted to have children. She grew up in an unhappy home with a mother who never seemed to like being a mom. She had many frustrations, which she often took out on us. So you saw lots of conflict? Oh, yes. She later goes through three illegal abortions of her own, two of which were self-induced. I mean, as McGinnis told her boyfriend once... All I wanted was bed fun. Bed fun. That, that I did not want babies. I only wanted bed fun. <laughs> you were clear in your mind about this. I was fairly clear. Yeah. <sighs> 
Trying to leave her Oklahoma past behind, McGinnis joins the Army. She trains as a surgical technician, and that's when Lily Loofborough, who profiled McGinnis for Slate, says McGinnis saw women injured from botched abortions or forced to give birth, even when they didn't want to have a baby. And it was all truly horrifying for her. And uh, she said to me more than once that that was really the thing that radicalized her, was seeing sort of the gamut of things that women have to go through in the name of irreversible biology that nobody lets them opt out of. McGinnis plunges into activism after the army. She moves to San Francisco, and at first, her advocacy starts with smaller stuff, like collecting signatures to reform abortion laws. But then pretty quickly, she gets to a point where she's like, forget reforming these abortion laws. Those reform laws aren't going to work. Let's abolish those laws. We need to argue for repeal. Let's repeal every law that criminalizes abortion. Leslie Regan says this idea, repealing all laws that criminalize abortion, it's an idea that may feel commonplace today. But back then, in the early 60s, this idea is what made Pat McGinnis a radical. She's earlier than the movement that we know of as women's liberation and when the major women's organizations like now also endorse the legalization of abortion. She She's ahead of everybody. So she was pro-abortion in the most explicit way, in a way that Planned Parenthood refused to be. And so that's why she said, "I made we made Planned Parenthood respectable. And McGinnis and her group do something that's pretty revolutionary. We got together names of doctors, and we had at the very top of this, in large letters, this whole thing was mimeographed, <laughs> large letters, are you pregnant? She puts together a list, a special list, Lily Loofborough says, that could make safe abortions possible, even for people living in a country where it's basically illegal. That meant basically putting together a Yelp <laughs> inventory of doctors outside the country who it was safe for women to go to. This list contains not just names of doctors, but their fees, also descriptions of the procedure. Regan says McGinnis and her group acted sort of like a feminist public health agency. They wanted to make sure the providers followed certain standards of practice. You have to wash your hands, you have to use sterile equipment, you have to disinfect the room. The U.S. woman generally was quite naive as to whether someone was a physician or someone was a specialist. They didn't know the questions to ask. They knew that they were desperate. We want to make sure um, that this be, is being done in a medically appropriate manner. The group would try to enforce these standards by asking women to fill out surveys after the fact, and bad actors would be removed from the list. But sometimes, Regan says, after the fact was too late. For example, one woman who had used the list claimed later that a specialist had raped her. The really interesting thing as, you know, somebody looking at this later is the way that they handled it. Instead of immediately taking that doctor off the list and warning people that, you know, he had assaulted somebody, do not see him, they sent a letter um, saying that they were very concerned and they did not want him to do anything like that again. Um, it they took... simply admonished the doctor. Yes. And remarkably, the group didn't remove that person from the list until a second woman claimed that that same specialist had raped her. Now, we don't know how many women were harmed as a result of relying on the list. There very well could have been other accounts. But Lily Loofborough says 
There's no question what Pat McGinnis and her group were at least trying to do in their work. This was really the way to return power to women. Even if it was hard, even if it was painful, and even if it was scary, she thought it was crucially important to actually return some of that power to the people concerned because women had been reduced to an almost infantile state by a medical community that thought that, like, you know, the authorities should be making those decisions for them. This fundamental principle Pat McGinnis lived by, advocated by, this principle that decisions about your body belong to you and not to some doctor or lawmaker, that principle eventually becomes a given in the whole abortion rights movement. Pat McGinnis the maverick becomes the mainstream. And yet, she remains an obscure figure in the history of the reproductive rights movement. I asked Loofborough, why was that, even after all these decades? She was not an attention seeker or a credit seeker. And she did not make particular common cause, to my surprise, with the feminist movement in general. Her strategy was blunt. Um, and I think that... I think that may have prevented her from being known as, like, the activist superstar that she really was. I mean, she was not Gloria Steinem. At one point, Loughborough was photographing McGinnis for the profile she wrote and asked her to pose with anything she liked. She went out back into her backyard and, and came back with a shovel and a pitchfork. And the pitchfork was just incredible. And so she's just standing there in her front yard with this pitchfork, like reenacting American Gothic in the most <laughs> incredible way. <laughs> I mean, what a symbol to choose, a pitchfork yeah. for your profile. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, Ukraine's foreign minister. That's next on WBUR. Checking business news, Cambridge-based Akamai Technology is the latest tech company to warn that sales are hurting because of a combination of the war in Ukraine, higher inflation, and a slowdown in Internet usage as people reduce the pace of at-home gaming, streaming, and online shopping as life returns closer to pre-pandemic. Today, the company reported earnings of $119 million for the first quarter. That's down 23% from a year ago. Akamai provides content delivery, cybersecurity, and cloud services. The company is also reversing its revenue forecast for the year downward. Its stock price fell 10% in trading today. Wall Street numbers went way up. That's coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Next Generation, performed by Boston Ballet School and Boston Ballet 2 with New England Conservatory Prep School, May 11th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Major gains on Wall Street. The Dow rose more than two and three quarters percent, 932 points. It closed at 34,061. S&P pulled in three percent to close at 4,300. The Nasdaq surged more than three percent to close at 12,965. Details on Marketplace starting at 630. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 6th. Semesteroff.com. 
Showers tonight, right about 50. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, inching up to 66 degrees. It's 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Lafayette Imports, bringing Plymouth Gin to the U.S. from England's southwest coast. Plymouth Gin is distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Two months, one week, and three days. That is how long since Russia invaded Ukraine. The war, of course, grinds on. The toll in lives lost and physical destruction has been catastrophic. And if anything, it's harder to make out how or when it might end than it was back on February 24th, the day of the invasion. Our next guest is one of Ukraine's most senior officials, the Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba. I first met and interviewed him in Kyiv right before the war. Earlier today, we reached him again at his office, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Kyiv, and I asked about the latest developments in another part of Ukraine, the devastated southern city of Mariupol. More than 160 civilians were evacuated this week. There are reports today that Russian forces have breached the Azovstal steel plant, that they are inside. Can you confirm? I have... uh probably the most reliable source from Mariupol, Azovstal. Mm -hmm. It is one of the Ukrainian officers who is locked up at Azovstal together with his uh, army fellows and uh, civilians. And usually he texts me or he calls me in the evening uh, to update on the developments. The last message that I received from him was last night. And I haven't heard from him since. I pray that uh, everything is fine. And uh, I'm really looking forward to receiving the message or a call tonight. And he will tell me that everything is fine with him. How many people are still inside this plant? Uh, it's hard to say. Hundreds uh, of civilians, yeah, mostly children and uh, women, and uh, more than a thousand uh, Ukrainian soldiers. But it's true that they get bombed every day. It's true that wounded soldiers uh, die because of the lack of proper treatment and because of the new bombings. Yeah. And they die after, uh, under the roof of the destroyed shelter. So it's, it's a tragedy when you escape death once, but it reaches you uh, from second attempt. I mean, this this plant is it's the last holdouts. It's you said more than a, yes. uh, something like a thousand yes. uh, soldiers and then hundreds of civilians. Russia says it has captured the city of Mariupol. Has it? No, no. Until until Azovstal holds, Mariupol holds. Mariupol is in Ukrainian hands. You're saying? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. As long as we continue resistance, it means that Russia has not captured the city, whatever their propagandists uh, tell us, uh, tell everyone. But the problem is that Russia ruthlessly 
attacks Azov style, trying to kill everyone who is there, destroy it and present uh, Mariupol as their huge success before 9th of May. Uh, the 9th of May, the, the Victory Day celebrations that Russia yeah. is gearing up for. Um, let me turn to the battle for the East. Um, Pentagon officials here in Washington say they do see Russia making progress, um, but they say it's minimal, um, that the Russian offensive thus far is anemic, is plotting. That's their words. Do you agree with that assessment? And, and how long can Ukrainian forces put up that kind of resistance? Okay, I want you to understand uh, the nature of the battle for Donbass. It looks this way. There is a line that Ukrainian army holds. Trenches, defensive positions. Russia throws on, this, uh, on these lines artillery fire, attacks from the air, and shells. Then, once they believe that uh, they killed everyone and they can advance, they send tanks with infantry to take over our positions. Uh, to their surprise, almost killed Ukrainian soldiers dig out from the trenches and start shooting back. And we throw them back. Because the morale of Russian army is very low, they're not ready to fight. And to the contrary, our soldiers are ready to uh, defend, to stand by every inch of our land until death. I do need to ask about uh, unexplained fires, explosions, at strategic locations in Russia. Russia's biggest chemical plant just burned down uh, for reasons not known. Is Ukraine attacking inside Russia? Whatever Ukraine does, Ukraine always defends itself. This is a defensive war. And uh, we defend our country from an aggressive country that is much bigger and stronger than us. But again, striking inside uh, Russia would be offensive, though, not defensive. No. No, I'm not saying it was. I'm not saying we are we are attacking uh, uh, objects in Russia. What I'm saying is that whatever we do is aimed at defending the country. Imagine theoretically that uh, a missile is heading towards targeting Ukraine, mm -hmm. and we have theoretically the capacity to shoot it down. Should we wait until it reaches uh, our, uh, our city because we cannot shoot it down in the Russian skies? If we had the possibility to shoot them down, we would, uh, we would, we would use them because the eventual target is in Ukraine and we have to save people uh, and our own houses. And I hear you using the word theoretically. So you are uh, not confirming or denying what, what is uh, targeting these locations no, no. in Russia. I think it's the military. I think it's the military guys who have to confirm or deny uh, hitting uh, this or that target. My point to you is that we are fighting against the enemy who is much stronger and has more resources than we do. And everything we do is aimed at saving, uh, at defending and saving Ukraine. We have no aggressive plans towards Russia. We have no intention to invade Russia. We have no intention to uh, cross the border between our countries. Everything we do is aimed at one thing, to defend our country and our right to exist. So that brings me to the last thing to ask you. You're a diplomat. As a diplomat, do you still hold out hope that diplomacy can end this war? Of course, every war ends with diplomacy. 
This is how history, this is how history works. In the end, uh, it's diplomats who have to sit down and draft and sign an agreement. That would require Russia to negotiate in good faith, though. Do you believe that is possible? You know, the chances to meet a Russian diplomat negotiating in good faith are equal to meeting a Martian on, on Earth. But uh, still, we have to be ready to negotiate with them, to defend our positions. But as a diplomat, I have to make sure that my country approaches these uh, negotiations in the strongest posi position possible. And the strengths of our position will depend on the level of qu and quality of sanctions imposed against Russia, on the amount and quality of weapons supplied to Ukraine, on the level of isolation of Russia in the world, and on the ability of Ukrainian army to push Russian army back. If we, I can do the three, the three first things to help our army to do the force. And as a diplomat, I'm focused on this. I'm ready to negotiate, but I want my country to be very strong in those negotiations. Dmitry Kaleba, he is the foreign minister of Ukraine. He joined us from the capital, Kiev. Foreign minister, thank you. Great to speak with you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Bruins try to get back on track tonight in Game 2 of their playoff series with the Carolina Hurricanes. They'll face off in Raleigh at 7 o'clock. Sox will put Garrett Whitlock on the mound tonight in the second game of their series against L.A. at Fenway, 7-10 game time. It's 4.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, offering online and on-campus master's in education programs and licensures for teachers. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. Boston Lyric Opera, presenting Grammy Award-winning Terrence Blanchard's Champion, an opera in jazz. Cutler Majestic Theater, May 18th through 22nd, blo.org. And Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center. When it comes to cancer, it matters where you start and when you start. Don't wait. Visit youhaveus.org. I'm Tiziana Deering, and I want to share a little something with you. I am happier and better when I feel connected to my community. Radio Boston does that. Our show is where the town hall meets the kitchen table. And starting Monday morning, we go live at 11 a.m. Join me for Radio Boston weekdays at 11 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better together. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. The EU is imposing its toughest sanctions yet against Russia, including a phased oil embargo, as Kyiv says Moscow is intensifying an offensive, focusing on infrastructure. NPR's Tim Mack has more from Ukraine. Six stations in western and central Ukraine were hit. We heard from a western Ukrainian official who said that strikes near the western city of Lviv actually targeted supply chains, including for humanitarian aid. Now, overnight, the current count of Russian missile strikes are that there have been more than 20 launched. And most of these missiles were fired from the Caspian Sea. That's according to a Ukrainian military spokesperson. And Pierce Tim Mack. The Iowa Democratic Party has submitted a letter to the DNC asking for the Iowa caucuses to remain the first in nation in the order of selecting a presidential candidate. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters has more. 
The DNC says they want to favor more competitive and diverse states and primaries instead of caucuses going forward. In 2020, Iowa's results were delayed for days because of a faulty smartphone app. Scott Brennan is a former Iowa Democratic Party chair and serves on the DNC committee that sets the calendar. We recognize that changes must be made in order to make the caucuses more straightforward and accessible. And we indicate in the letter that we are willing to make significant procedural changes. The letter also points out that Iowa is easy for candidates to travel across and has inexpensive media markets. The state party will officially make their case to the DNC next month. Meanwhile, Republicans have kept things status quo and potential candidates have already begun testing the waters here in recent months. For NPR News, I'm Clay Masters in Des Moines. Wall Street higher by the closing bell after the Fed raised its benchmark interest rate by a half a percentage point as expected. The Dow up 932, the Nasdaq up 401. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Emergency crews are on the scene of a structural collapse on Summers Street in South Boston this afternoon. Three people were injured. Boston police say at least one of them was hurt seriously. WBUR's Daryl C. Murphy is at the scene of the incident at the former Edison Power Plant in South Boston. Here in South Boston, there's been a structural collapse and three people were trapped inside. Two of the people have been let out. One person still remains. So right now, we folks are just kind of waiting for more information, you know, just trying to get a sense of um, how severe the situation is and what's, what's going on beyond what we already know. Two of the people have been taken to a hospital. This is the second collapse to happen at a construction site in Boston this year. In March, a construction worker died during the demolition of the government center parking garage downtown. Massachusetts residents can now more easily access the COVID treatment pill Paxlovid. Today, the Baker administration announced a virtual screening program for adults who test positive for COVID and have symptoms. Previously, people had to go through a doctor to get the medication. The new program allows people to have a telehealth visit with a health care clinician who can then prescribe the medication. You can find out more about the program at mass.gov slash COVID telehealth. That's mass.gov slash COVID telehealth. Boston City Council is getting a new member. Yesterday, Gabriella Coletta won a special election for District 1, that is East Boston, the North End, and Charlestown. She will replace Lydia Edwards, who left the council after she was elected to the state Senate. Coletta says she'll make it a top priority to increase the percentage of affordable housing units in new developments. Any new developments or any new units in developments should be going from 13% to 20%, at least that should be the floor. And these affordable units should actually be affordable at a spread of uh, area median incomes that reflect the neighborhood. Coletta says she also plans to fight displacement in housing, ensure quality education citywide, and push for environmental justice. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation, believing that everyone benefits when we come together to build more equitable communities. The Boston Foundation is embracing its role as a civic leader to seize this moment. TBF is joining with its many partners to build a greater Boston that works for everyone. Learn more at tbf.org slash civic leadership. Yet another gray, damp day coming to an end. Showers stick around this evening until about 10 p.m. Plenty of clouds overnight, staying right about 50 degrees. And for tomorrow, mainly sunny, inching up to 66 degrees. 52 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI. It's all things considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Adrian Florido. If the Roe versus Wade decision that legalized abortion across the U.S. is overturned, then abortion laws and abortion access will vary by state. Some states are set to implement total bans. Others are preparing to help patients who travel from states where they can no longer get abortions. And legal battles are expected across the country. NPR national correspondent Sarah McCammon joins us now. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Adrian. Sarah, big picture, if the Supreme Court does end up handing down an opinion similar to the draft that leaked this week overturning Roe versus Wade, what would the country look like in terms of access? So there are several different types of abortion laws that could take effect from state to state in different ways, doing different things. Right now, 13 states have what are known as trigger bans, which are specifically designed to ban abortion if Roe falls. Elizabeth Nash is with the Guttmacher Institute, which is a research group that supports abortion rights. You're thinking from Idaho to Kentucky, all the way up to North Dakota and down to Texas. So they're across the country, they're a cross section of the country, and they will would all be in effect within one month of the decision, with most of them going into effect in maybe even as quickly as a day. And then in addition to those, there are another dozen or more states that have either old pre-Roe bans still on the books or other restrictions that are currently tied up in courts. Some of those are early abortion bans. Hmm. All told, Guttmacher estimates about 26 states are likely or certain to ban most abortions if Roe falls. They estimate 36 million women of reproductive age would be in a state without abortion access. So how might this actually play out, like like for those old restrictions or, or those laws that are currently tied up in court? When, when would those go into effect? Well, states with Republican leaders are likely to act quickly to try to implement as many of these bans as possible. Sue Liebel is with the Susan B. Anthony list, which opposes abortion rights. And she says her group is working with governor's offices and attorneys general in some of these states to prepare them to enforce bans as soon as they can. We have been talking to all of those about you know, acting immediately. So when that happens, let's be ready. You know, how do you how do you uh, get that back into play to say, hey, hey, don't forget, you know, this is not something you want to start the night before. Right. We have to plan for this because there's a process and that could mean certifying some of the laws or asking courts to allow them to go into effect. So it seems almost certain that there are going to be more legal battles, even once the Supreme Court issues its decision. Yeah, it's a virtual certainty. Legal experts expect a tremendous amount of litigation and confusion around how to apply the specifics of the eventual decision to individual state laws. They'll also be looking at state constitutions, some of which may offer their own protections for abortion rights. There could be special sessions in some states that don't have laws on the books but want to either expand or limit abortion access. And as one reproductive rights advocate told me, it is likely to be a mosh pit of litigation in some of these states. So, Sarah, what does this mean for patients and abortion providers right now, today? 
Providers are continuing to offer procedures as long as they can. Dr. Colleen McNicholas is with Planned Parenthood serving patients in the Midwest, including in Missouri, which has a trigger law. Earlier today on the NPR program 1A, McNicholas said they're trying to be very clear with patients right now about what the situation is. As we're making appointments for future care, we're being transparent and honest with folks to say today you can make that appointment and at any moment, if that final decision comes out and is as devastating as it suggests it will be, uh, Missourians will immediately lose access to abortion in their state. So most, so more than half of states there are likely to ban most or all abortions. But what about the rest? Well, some are expanding access or shoring up protections in state law. Maryland is providing some funding for training abortion providers. Connecticut is providing some legal protections for them. Guttmacher says close to 20 states are in a situation with fairly solid protections for abortion rights. And then there are a handful where it's more complicated, and you're likely to see a lot of continued battles over these questions in legislatures as well as in the courts. That's NPR's Sarah McCammon. Sarah, thank you. Thank you. The European Union is planning to phase out Russian oil by the end of the year. It's part of a package of new sanctions against Russia for its war in Ukraine. NPR's Rob Schmitz joins us from Berlin to talk about the announcement. Hey, Rob. Hey, Ari. So tell us more about these latest sanctions from the EU. Yeah, the biggest point you uh, you mentioned is a ban on Russian oil in the EU by the end of this year. Uh, Russia exports two-thirds of its oil to the EU, so this is pretty significant. Uh, The EU also plans to sanction individuals in Russia's military who were involved in alleged war crimes. And last, uh, the EU plans to remove Russia's biggest bank, Sparebank, from SWIFT, the global financial network. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen says this sixth package of EU sanctions on Russia promises to further isolate Vladimir Putin. Putin wanted to wipe out Ukraine from the map, and he will clearly not succeed. On the contrary, Ukraine has risen in bravery and in unity, and it is his own country, Russia, that Putin is sinking. And yet oil prices rose by more than 3% after the announcement today. How difficult is it going to be for Europe to wean itself off Russian oil? Yeah, this won't be easy. You know, a quarter of Europe's crude oil comes from Russia, and countries like Slovakia and Hungary depend on Russia for more than 75% of their oil. Uh, Both these countries will likely be granted exemptions from the EU for this embargo because of that. I spoke to European energy expert Andreas Goldthau about the EU's approach to doing away with Russian energy, and here's what he said. They go for the low-hanging fruits first. That was coal, and now it's oil. Gas is still something they're not touching. The second thing they're doing is they're not um, implementing an embargo right away, neither for coal nor for oil, but they do this as part of a a gradual phase-out. So Ari, in essence, they're giving industry and the markets time to adapt because, you know, whenever you suddenly take oil off of global markets, it often means a sudden price hike everywhere. So gradual is better here. Everywhere. Is the rest of the world ready? I mean, how might this impact American consumers? Yeah, Goldthaw says the EU embargo will mean a higher price for oil and that will likely contribute to inflation in the United States and elsewhere. So the EU is phasing out Russian coal and now Russian oil. What about gas? Yeah, that's not going to be easy to replace. You know, with gas, for the most part, you need pipelines to get from point A to point B. And Russian gas pipelines, a lot of them end in Europe. 
And that's why it's so difficult for the EU to impose an embargo on Russian gas. You know, current non-pipeline infrastructure like liquefied natural gas terminals will not be able to replace a loss of pipeline gas in the short term. And experts say an embargo would be too costly for the European economy at this stage. You know, in the meantime, though, the EU is ramping up renewable energy infrastructure and energy efficiency measures to lower its demand on gas overall. But there is a danger that Goldthal mentioned that Russians don't give the Europeans the time frame to gradually cut this energy off, uh, that Vladimir Putin goes ahead and cuts it off sooner than the Europeans were planning on, and that could cause a severe energy crisis. I mean, how quickly could clean energy get ramped up to make up for this? This, Ari, will take a long time, but we have many countries in Europe, including Germany, that is putting it on a fast track. But again, in Germany, a fast track means <laughs> it could be maybe a year or two or maybe three. So we're, we're looking in, in many months rather than weeks. NPR's Rob Schmitz in Berlin. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Do you need an excuse not to cut your lawn? Here's one. Scientists say leaving your grass a little longer in spring can actually help bees and other pollinators. A few dozen U.S. cities have joined a program called No Mow May. Here's Chuck Kornbach of member station WUWM in Milwaukee. Matthew Normansell is standing in the small side yard of his house in Appleton, Wisconsin, and he likes what he's starting to see poke through the ground. You can so already see the dandelion starting to pop up. I uh, get a little bit of the uh, creeping Charlie, a few small violets, a, a lot of daisies as well. Um, but they'll, they'll all be flowering kind of at some point during May and providing uh, you know, pollen to these uh, pollinating insects. Those plants will flower in May because Normansell says he'll be leaving his lawnmower in the garage and joining about 500 other Appleton residents taking part in a city-backed program to not mow at all for a month. This community of 75,000 has become a U.S. leader in the No Mow May movement, which began in England and has spread to more than 30 cities, mostly in the Midwest. That's where May is considered a key time for pollinators to come out of hibernation or their winter habitat. Israel del Toro teaches biology at Lawrence University in Appleton. He says an initial study of unmowed yards in the city shows a five-fold increase in the number of bees, and they're very hungry in the spring. So when we leave our weeds, or things we would normally call weeds, to grow, those are like little cheeseburgers for our pollinators, and they're able to get some cheap calories really, really fast and put on uh, some weight that'll give them a leg up for the season. In many U.S. cities, not cutting your grass in May could get you a citation. But communities taking part in this initiative have agreed to waive that. Appleton Mayor Jake Woodford is taking part in the No Mow program, too. And it's, you know, not been without its hiccups uh, or its frustrations from some community members, but uh, by and large, there's just been incredible support for the effort, a lot of buy-in, a lot of participation. But hearing about increasing pollinator populations has not convinced everyone of the value of letting the lawn grow. At the service area of the Northside Power Center in Appleton, Steve Schick says during a rainy springtime, the grass can grow really tall by June. Now you've got to struggle getting it back under control. 
and a lot of people will have a problem with their mowers when they try to get back under control and they, a lot of times it will damage them. Backers of No Mow May advise raising the lawnmower blade height in June or using a string trimmer first. Appleton is one of about 150 communities with a B-City designation under a program coordinated by the Oregon-based Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation. The group's Matthew Shepard says while valuable, not mowing is just a first step. It's not like the end point. You know, we can't say, gosh, we've, we've let our lawn grow, we've saved the bees, yay. Shepard and others say they hope keeping lawnmowers in storage for a month will further habitat awareness and the central role pollinators play. For NPR News, I'm Chuck Quirmbach in Milwaukee. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, Florida lawmakers have adjourned without addressing the issue of condo safety after the collapse in Surfside that killed 98 people. That story is still to come. In the forecast, dank weather should continue into the nighttime. Showers, fog, temperatures right about 50, close to where it is right now. Tomorrow, sunshine finally, warming to the mid-60s, light winds. Friday should have a mix of clouds and sunshine staying in the mid-60s. And right now, it looks like the weekend should be dry and cooler in the mid-50s. 52 degrees now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Experience Gorilla Grove, the incredible new immersive outdoor gorilla habitat at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo. Plan your visit at franklinparkzoo.org. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com. Bruins will try to get back on track tonight in Game 2 of their playoff series of the Carolina Hurricanes. And Red Sox will put Garrett Whitlock on the mound in the second game of their series against L.A. at Fenway. It's 449. WBUR supporters include Worcester Cultural Coalition. Music Worcester presents jazz singer Dee Dee Bridgewater at Mechanics Hall May 7th. More at WorcesterCulture.org. Building Restoration Services, hiring architects, engineers, and estimators to solve complex building envelope problems. BuildingRestorationServices.com. And Farmers to You, an online Vermont farmers market who believes that you can only trust your food when you know your farmers. FarmersToYou.com slash WBUR. It's an urban farm, it's an urban greenhouse, and this is an urban problem. Around New England, people are fighting climate change by eating and growing food sustainably. What we expect as a result of climate change is extreme precipitation. And as long as we route it, store it, save it, then it can turn into extreme food. So both of our neighbors get a lot of veggies from here. To learn what you can do, sign up for our newsletter, Cooked. Go to WBUR.org cooked. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido. 
and I'm Ari Shapiro. Nearly a year after a residential high-rise building collapsed in Florida, killing 98 people, the state has done nothing to address condo safety. There are more than a million and a half condo units in the state. Nearly a million are over 30 years old, and Florida lawmakers and the governor have failed to act, despite promises that they would prevent a condo tower collapse like the one in Surfside. NPR's Greg Allen looks at some of the reasons why. In Surfside now, there's just a big hole in the ground to mark the place where the Champlain Tower South building stood. Martin Landisfeld's sister and brother-in-law were among those who died there. He was at the scene of the collapse recently to call on Florida's governor and lawmakers to do something to improve condo safety. One year later, the new question is, when will the next building collapse? Following the disaster in Surfside, a federal investigation is underway of what caused the collapse of the aging structure. There was also a grand jury investigation and a number of task forces that produced recommendations on how to avoid building collapses in the future. Miami-Dade County is poised to act on some of the recommendations, including recertifications for buildings that are 30 years old instead of the current 40-year requirement. But local officials say action is needed on the state level to adopt regulations that apply to all condos in Florida. The Republican-led legislature did consider bills that would require condos to undergo safety inspections and to hold financial reserves to fund needed maintenance and repairs. But it adjourned without taking any action. Congresswoman Debbie Washman Schultz blames Governor Ron DeSantis. Governor DeSantis needs to leave. He needs to get involved in getting this critical issue across the finish line. DeSantis was active on many other bills before the legislature, on issues involving how race and sexual orientation is taught in the schools, on the shape of new congressional maps, and on punishing Disney for opposing his policies. He didn't take a leading role on condo safety legislation, but says he supports it. We were very receptive. We wanted to be able to um, sign something that was going to make an impact. But the idea that somehow I was trying to not support it was not true. Florida's failure to do anything on condo safety following the tragedy in Surfside disappointed many, including Fausto Gomez. He heads a group of nearly three dozen condo associations in Key Biscayne. I was surprised that nothing happened, yes. I was very surprised, simply for the optics of it. Gomez's condo is on the top floor of a seven-story building with a large outdoor patio. There's a view of downtown Miami. And there's a view of Biscayne Bay. Gomez says his building is just 20 years old, but is already beginning the process of recertifying its safety and structural integrity. That's not because of state or county regulations, but because following the Surfside collapse, the residents of his building wanted it, and insurance companies may demand it. The head of Florida's Association of Insurance Agents, Kyle Ulrich, says insurance companies are now requiring condominium buildings over 15 years old to be recertified before their policies are renewed. And he says the cost of insurance is going up dramatically. Almost all associations are getting rate increases at this moment, and I've heard from members that they've been delivering rate increases upwards of 100 percent to some condominium associations. Ulrich and others say in some ways it doesn't matter that Florida has failed to adopt new rules on condo safety because the insurance industry is already doing it on its own. Along with steep price increases, many condo associations are now being required to carry out deferred repairs and improvements. Costs Ulrich says that may be hard on retirees and others on a fixed income. It's those condominium associations that are going to be in a very difficult spot having to assess their owners to take care of deferred maintenance and structural issues while at the same time having a very difficult time finding coverage. 
Florida helped pioneer condominium living and is second only to California in the number of total units. With the Surfside tragedy, Florida is now raising new questions about what role the government should play in making sure aging buildings are still safe to live in. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. As the country prepares for a Supreme Court ruling that could overturn Roe v. Wade, people are envisioning what it might mean for them and for their communities. TV writers have been bringing those stories into American homes for decades, as NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports. Steph Harold studies depictions of abortion in popular culture. She's a researcher with the nonprofit Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health. She says TV mostly gets it wrong. Most of those characters are white, are not parenting at the time of their abortions, are wealthy, are young, kind of the, the exact opposite of the reality of who's getting abortion in the U.S. Think HBO's Sex and the City. Did you really want to have a child with a guy who serves burgers on roller skates? More recently, scripted TV shows have portrayed medical abortions in which a woman takes pills. In Law and Order last year, a teenager is taken to the hospital when she's found bleeding on the street. What happened to her? She was hemorrhaging. Her talk screen shows misoprostol and mifepristone. The abortion pill. We had to do a DNC. The FDA approved the use of those drugs to terminate pregnancies up to 10 weeks. For Harold, this is an example of depicting extremes, not reality. Showing these kind of devastating medical consequences to taking abortion pills, to me, is extremely irresponsible because we know that abortion pills are very safe. Harold says a more realistic portrayal aired last year in an episode of ABC's A Million Little Things. You know, we actually see her take the pill, put it in her mouth. She sits on the couch. She's surrounded by pillows and blankets. Um, The guy she had sex with actually flies over to Boston from the UK to be with her during her abortion. Abortion has come up in comedies like Curb Your Enthusiasm and BoJack Horseman. In Jane the Virgin, Jane is a 23-year-old who is accidentally artificially inseminated. Are you ready for your insemination? Jane is actually dealing with this wild telenovela premise. Film scholar Diana Martinez says it was groundbreaking for Jane the Virgin to include conversations about abortion. Particularly because this is a taboo subject within Latino households. You know, there's a political divide, there's a generational divide. Jane's mother had Jane when she was 16. Jane's grandmother is a strict, devout Catholic. Jane assumes the only reason she's alive is because her grandmother would have forbidden her daughter to get an abortion. Turns out her grandmother did suggest her daughter have an abortion. Her grandmother tells Jane, but I carry that shame in my heart every day. It's powerful because it allows for this duality to exist that people of faith can also believe in a woman's choice. Balancing different viewpoints is something producer Norman Lear and actress B. Arthur tried to do when the sitcom Maud became the first primetime TV show to address abortion. In 1972, not long before Roe v. Wade was decided, Maud becomes pregnant at age 47. Oh, yes, Carol, you see, on top of everything else, I'm preggy. <laughs> Jokes aside, Maud agonizes over what to do. Ultimately, she and her husband decide they are too old to have a child. The story also featured a character who is the same age as Maud and also pregnant. She decides to have the child. She already has four children. Actually, we had planned at stopping up four. Four is a nice family, Lorraine. Why didn't you? I couldn't do that. I mean, each to his own, but I couldn't. I don't think it's right for me to make that kind of a decision. Who 
whose decision is it? The court is considering that question. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments Wealth Management, offering guidance on retirement income, Social Security, and estate planning. More at fisherinvestments.com. Clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson, presenting Seasick. Science journalist Alana Mitchell's one-woman mission to find hope in the face of climate change, May 11th to 22nd at the Paramount. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Scientists are expressing concern about COVID-19 as a mightier version of the Omicron variant takes hold. We're seeing rises in new cases and we're seeing wastewater levels go up. I think the question is how high will it go before it peaks? More on what to expect from this potential surge coming up. It's Wednesday, May 4th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates by a half percentage point, the biggest increase in more than two decades. In 1976, Republicans adopted an anti-abortion stance in their party platform. The GOP became a a political vehicle for the movement as more vocal Christian right began to rise. The anti-abortion movement and the GOP coming up. Also, Grammy Award-winning bassist Ron Carter turns 85 and Carnegie Hall will celebrate. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden says the federal government is on track to pay down more of the national debt this quarter for the first time in six years. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports that new estimate from the Treasury Department shows it would be the largest deficit reduction in a single year on record. President Biden says the U.S. is set to cut the national deficit by another $1.5 trillion by the end of the fiscal year. Speaking from the White House, Biden touted his administration's record on reducing the deficit compared with the former Trump administration. The bottom line is the deficit went up every year under my predecessor before the pandemic and and during the pandemic. And it's gone down both years since I've been here. Period. That's, they're the facts. Biden says bringing down the deficit is one way to ease inflationary pressures, but gave no specifics. The administration has faced sharp criticism from some Republicans for an historic rise in consumer prices. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Russia is reiterating warnings its forces will target and destroy Western arms shipments delivered in support of Ukraine. From Moscow, Charles Maines reports. Russia has long complained about the West providing arms to Ukraine. 
Kremlin cited the weapons as a justification to launch what it called a special operation to demilitarize its neighbor last February. Speaking before a gathering of military officials in Moscow, Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu said the U.S. and its NATO allies were continuing to pump weapons to the government in Kiev and declared that any Western arms transports are now targets to be destroyed. Shoigu's comments came as a ministry spokesman claimed Russian missiles had disabled six Ukrainian railway stations used to ship Western arms to Ukrainian forces in the country's east, and PR could not independently verify the claim. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Reproductive rights groups say poor women and those of color would be the most affected if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports women denied abortions are more likely to be in poverty years later. The U.S. has a higher rate of unintended pregnancies than other rich countries, and most are low-income women of color. Many are already mothers and say they can't afford another child, but they also have the most difficulty affording an abortion. Medicaid coverage is limited. Increasing state restrictions force women to take time off work and go out of state for the procedure. Researchers have found that women denied an abortion are four times as likely to be living in poverty years later. They reported they cannot cover the basic costs of housing, food, and transportation, and many relied on public assistance. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Washington. The Federal Reserve continues to take actions aimed at reining in some of the worst inflation in the U.S. in 40 years. The central bank today announcing an aggressive half a point interest rate hike. Wall Street apparently happy it wasn't even higher. The Dow jumped 932 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Three people were injured in a structural building collapse in South Boston this afternoon. Two people have been transported to the hospital. A third person was removed by crews from the collapse in the last 15 minutes. Boston police say at least one of the three people suffered serious injuries. The site on Summer Street is the former Edison Power Plant. It's currently being converted into a mixed-use development. This is the second collapse to happen at a construction site in Boston this year. In March, a construction worker died during the demolition of downtown parking garage. An independent state agency is calling on Massachusetts Department of Children and Families to review its child custody procedures. The Office of the Child Advocate has issued a report that finds the state failed to protect a girl who disappeared two years before she was officially reported missing. Her father has since been charged in connection with the disappearance. WBUR's Stevie Chapman has more. Harmony Montgomery was placed in foster care when she was two months old while her father was in prison. A judge granted him custody when she was four and a half. She was last seen eight months later. Office of the Child Advocate Director Maria Mosaides says the state's child welfare system did not properly vet the father. I was surprised that there was not more robust cross-examination of Mr. Montgomery in terms of his self-presentation of his fitness. The organization overseeing public defenders says the report's criticism disregards constitutional rights of children and parents and fails to consider the harm children often suffer in foster care. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman. Mass General Brigham has the green light from state regulators to move forward on two expansions. One project will build two new towers at Mass General Hospital and create hundreds of single patient rooms. The second will create a five-story addition to Faulkner Hospital in Jamaica Plain and nearly 80 new beds. In exchange for the approval, the hospital system will face new reporting requirements and must contribute millions of dollars to community health initiatives. 
In the forecast, grim weather presses on through the evening. Heavy clouds rain off and on overnight tonight, uh, down a few degrees to just about 50. Tomorrow could inch up to the mid-60s, mostly sunny skies. Friday, partly sunny and breezy, back up in the mid-60s. In the Boston area right now, 52 degrees at 507. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Ari Shapiro. For a few months, it looked like COVID-19 was retreating in the U.S. Daily case counts were declining across the country at the lowest they had been since last summer. But COVID cases are now ticking up again, and scientists are concerned that a new variant may cause another surge. NPR's Michaeline Duclef is here to tell us about it. Hey, Michaeline. Hi, Ari. Cases are still low across the U.S. overall, but tell us about this new variant that scientists are concerned about. What do they know about it? Yeah, so about a month ago, New York State was having a mini surge, especially in the center part of the state, and health officials found that the cause of that surge was a new variant. It has a complex name. It's called BA2.12.1. It's a mouthful. And it's a new version of Omicron. Basically, the Omicron variant picked up several mutations that give it an advantage and help it spread faster than the previous version, about 50% faster. And so where is it now, and how likely is it that this is going to cause another surge? Yeah, it's most common in New York, New Jersey, and the mid-Atlantic states, but it's present throughout the whole country. And given its current trajectory, it will likely dominate the outbreak here in the U.S. within a month or so. In terms of whether it will cause another wave, I was talking to Shishi Law about that. She's a bioinformatician at the company Helix, which tracks variants across the country. She says there's little doubt that this new variant will cause a surge in cases. Because the current trajectory is that it's growing. And we're seeing rises in new cases and we're seeing wastewater levels go up. So I I think the question is how high will it go before it peaks? Um, I don't know the answer to that. It really just depends on people's behavior and the weather, (laughs) how how big of a um, sort of bump it is. So this bump or surge she's talking about will likely occur in about a month or two, she says. So you're telling me that if last summer vacation was all about the Delta variant vacation, this summer is going to be BA2.12.1? (laughs) Yes, it might get another name by then. But yeah, and you know, this prediction is supported with by what's happening in South Africa right now. That country has a new variant or two variants that are very similar to the one here in the US. And it's already causing a surge there. And the US tends to be about six weeks behind that country. Fortunately, though, scientists don't think this next wave will be as big as the surge we had last summer, or sorry, last winter, which perhaps, uh, you know, half Americans caught uh, Omicron back then. But if half of Americans caught Omicron last winter and so many Americans have been vaccinated, how could a version of Omicron cause a surge when so many Americans are protected? You know, that is a really great question. And um, two preliminary studies that came out this week start to answer it. And what these studies found is these new versions of Omicron, both here in the U.S. and in South Africa, picked up just a few mutations that allow them to overcome or evade immune protection generated by a prior infection with Omicron. So these new variants likely can reinfect people who have already had Omicron. I was talking to Pei Young Shi about this. He's a virologist at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. He says Omicron is really unique because it has an incredible ability to change or evolve in a way that allows it to just zoom past the immune system. And it does this very quickly. In terms of the ability to evade antibodies, Omicron is a master player. It's way more efficient than all the previous variants. 
like in this case, sometimes you just need one key mutation there that can totally flip things around. But she emphasized that there's no sign this new variant causes more severe disease compared to the previous Omicrons. Well, that's good news. How about the effectiveness of the vaccine against this new variant? You know, generally, the vaccine probably won't offer much protection against infection, especially over the long term. But scientists do think it will still offer excellent protection against severe disease and hospitalization. But you do need the booster, so three doses of the mRNA vaccine. And if you're over age 50, health officials recommend you get a fourth dose or a second booster about four months after the first one. That will give you a little more protection against severe disease, especially if you're at high risk. So Ari, really, you know, the hope here is that although cases will probably surge again at some point, maybe this summer, hospitalizations want, because as you said, the majority of Americans now have some protection. Here's hoping. NPR's Michaeline Duclef, thanks for the update. Thank you, Ari. Overturning Roe v. Wade has been arguably the single most animating cause among conservatives in America for decades. Now a leaked draft Supreme Court opinion has made it apparent that goal is close to reality. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports on how the issue of abortion came to define Republican politics. Abortion wasn't always as politically charged as it is today. Even after the Supreme Court ruled on Roe v. Wade in 1973, there were Democratic and Republican candidates against abortion for a long time, in part to appeal to Catholic voters. Then in 1976, Republicans adopted an anti-abortion stance in their party platform, and the GOP became this political vehicle for the movement as a more vocal Christian right started to rise. Here's Ronald Reagan at the March for Life rally in 1988. We're told about a woman's right to control her own body. But doesn't the unborn child have a higher right than that is to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Leaders like Reagan helped to boost Republicans as a party of, quote, family values. But over the next two decades, more radical, socially conservative figures started putting more pressure on the party. You really see the power of the anti-abortion movement to not only be a part of a party, but to really remake a party and demand sort of political uniformity on this issue. That's Jennifer Holland. She's a scholar on the anti-abortion movement and a professor at the University of Oklahoma. We had to convince a whole host of people that this was not only political, but the most important political issue that there is, and that everything came second to opposing abortion. She says that movement leaders didn't want elected officials to just believe that abortion was immoral. They wanted them to act on it. Someone who took up that call? Pat Buchanan. Here he is in 1996 during his campaign for president. If I'm nominated, I will choose a pro-life Republican running mate. I will appoint justices who will overturn Roe v. Wade, and I will be the most pro-life president in the history of the United States of America, bar none. In the decades since, Republicans have heavily relied on voters who are staunchly opposed to abortion rights, like white evangelical Christians. It's partly how Donald Trump won the presidency in 2016 with his pledge to appoint anti-abortion rights justices to the court. The justices that I am going to appoint, and I've named 20 of them, the justices that I'm going to appoint will be pro-life. They will have a conservative bent. At the same time, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell put the federal judiciary at the top of his agenda, refusing a hearing on President Obama's nominee for a vacant Supreme Court seat until the 2016 election was finished. And then in 2020, moving quickly to confirm the third of Trump's Supreme Court picks before the election. Those justices appear set to provide the votes to overturn Roe in the coming weeks. 
But even if they get this victory, the anti-abortion movement's ultimate goal is to implement a nationwide ban on abortions. They've gotten one step closer to that with this draft opinion from the Supreme Court, but politically, it could have some consequences. Here's Paul Jupe, a professor of religion and politics at Denison University. The tension that Roe versus Wade has created for them was really beneficial. So once that tension is released and states are allowed to do it, they lose um, the ability to mobilize based on abortion tensions with the federal government. Plus, it could be politically difficult for Republicans to go further on curtailing abortion rights nationally. Public opinion shows a majority of Americans don't support a full ban on abortion. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. Washington. Last night, the Houston Astros soundly beat the Seattle Mariners, but it wasn't just that victory that got Astros fans cheering. The hometown crowd was also celebrating a major milestone for the team's manager, Dusty Baker. He got him! Astros win 4 nothing, and there it is! Dusty Baker, career win number 2,000 as a manager. His much-anticipated place in Cooperstown is now solidified. One of 12 all-time. Congratulations, Dusty. Not just that, but he's the first African-American manager to hit that 2,000 milestone. After the game, Baker was quick to acknowledge that baseball is a team sport. Thanks to everybody. Thanks for all the support. Thanks to the players, because I couldn't do it without them. Baker is a baseball lifer. He's 72 years old, has been a manager in the MLB since 1993, and has led five teams in the course of nearly 30 years. His career started as a player with the 1968 Atlanta Braves and with some pretty cool company. One of the amazing things about Dusty is he was a rookie in 1968, and he was in the dugout with, for a very brief time, there was Dusty Baker and... Hank Aaron and Satchel Paige all in the same dugout with the Atlanta Braves in 68. That's Howard Bryant, senior writer for ESPN and a friend of Baker's. Bryant says that the key to Baker's success as a manager was his ability to keep his ego out of it. He never tries to be bigger than the players. He knows that the players win the game. He has respect for what the players do. He never believes that he is the solution. He always knows that they're the solution. And Dusty has that special gift of really making people invest in wanting to succeed, not just for themselves, but for him. Not only that, but Bryant says Baker knows how to bring teams together. Whatever teams he manages, whether it was Washington or Chicago, Cincinnati, he's always made sure that the different players from different ethnicities brought in food to the clubhouse really make it a family family atmosphere. And that's some of the things he really prides himself on. The next winning achievement Dusty Baker is shooting for as a manager, four games to win the World Series. For many Americans, Cinco de Mayo, May 5th, is a holiday to celebrate Mexican culture and heritage. Listen tomorrow afternoon to hear Cinco de Mayo's origin story. On May 5th, 1862, an epic battle was fought, a battle fought and won by Mexicans against foreign aggression, a battle that helped shape the future of Mexico and the U.S. 
Hear that story by telling your smart speaker to play NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, the Fed's interest rate hike. That's coming up next. In business news, Moderna's stock rose nearly 6% in today's trading. That after the biopharma company and COVID vaccine maker reported a net income of $3.7 billion, blowing past Wall Street expectations. It's more than triple the amount from the same period of last year. The numbers from Wall Street are coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Major gains on the street today. The Dow rose more than two and three quarters percent, 932 points. It closed at 34,061. S&P pulled in three percent to close at 4,300. Nasdaq surged more than three percent to close at 12,965. All the details coming up on Marketplace in just over an hour. It's now 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Mindscape. Featuring new works by choreographers William Forsyth and Yorma Ello. Live May 5th to 15th, bostonballet.org. And Clark, where chef demonstrations of Wolf Appliances help you compare features and taste the results of ovens, cooktops, ranges, and more. ClarkLiving.com slash demo. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. Patchy fog and drizzle through the evening hours. Could have showers well into the night. Not much change in the temperature, though, just about 50 degrees. Tomorrow and Friday should bring relief in the form of sunshine. Temperatures in the mid-60s. Saturday, more clouds than bright sunshine on Sunday. Weekend highs in the mid-50s. 52 degrees now in the Boston area. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller. Your part-time controller is hiring full and part-time accountants to assist nonprofits while working from home and at client offices. More at yourparttimecontroller.com slash employment. And from Zoom, used by half a million businesses, a platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom, how the world connects. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Ron Carter is one of the most original, prolific, and influential bassists in jazz history. In a career spanning six decades, he's appeared on more than 2,000 records and worked with greats like Aretha Franklin. Today, on Carter's 85th birthday, Tom Vitale has this look at his career. Ron Carter's most historic recordings came early in his career, in the 1960s, as the bass player in the second great Miles Davis Quintet. Carter says the quintet, with Miles on trumpet, George Coleman, and then Wayne Shorter on saxophone, Herbie Hancock on piano, and Tony Williams on drums, never rehearsed before recording. He says the band was a laboratory. I gave Miles the title of the head clinician of this laboratory. And his job was to bring in these various chemicals night in and night out and see what these remaining four guys in this group, what kind of combinations would they find of these explosive devices he brought to the gig and what kind of fun could he have trying to keep up. He did not play like a metronome, like tick, 
tick, tick, tick, tick. 88-year-old saxophonist Wayne Shorter says Ron Carter stood out because he played bass in the moment and off the beat. Some bass players the whole time played on the beat, on every note. But Ron would start something, let go, and jump all the way to uh, where it was going. But the note that he played had a lot to do with carrying the sound and the color of what he left out. In the 1970s, Ron Carter became the house bass player for CTI Records, a label that showcased jazz with distinctive talent and arrangements. But Carter says again, many of the CTI record dates were unrehearsed. On the label's first release, Freddie Hubbard's Red Clay, Carter had to come up with the title song's intro on the fly in the studio. Freddie Hubbard just brought this tune in. He played the piano part, you know, and said, you play this, you play that. And Ron gave me an intro for eight bars and said, yeah, well, what am I doing with it? Where's it going? You figure something out, Ron. Come on, let's two, three, four. And that is the story of that bass line. Do good do good do 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 do yeah, that's mine. To me he's probably the in the last 50 years, the most important bass player. Bassist Stanley Clark says before he became famous in Chick Corea's Return to Forever band, he learned from listening to Ron Carter. I remember as a young kid, I used to get his records. I could tell that he was very, very professional because the consistency was there from record to record to record, his sound, his ability, and then his flow. Ron Carter was born in Ferndale, Michigan in 1937. He started to play the cello at the age of 10, but switched to bass in high school because opportunities were limited for black musicians to play classical music. By the time he was 25, he was one of the most sought-after sidemen in jazz. Giovanni Russinello writes about jazz for the New York Times. When I think of Ron Carter, I think of this incredible ability to be sure-footed everywhere, but also sound almost like a plasma, like some undefinable, mutable substance. His bass lines sound endlessly fascinating and full of ideas. Next Tuesday, Ron Carter will celebrate his 85th birthday at Carnegie Hall, leading three different bands performing highlights from his career. He says he has no plans to retire. Age has not made me think slower. It has not made me refuse gigs. What it's made me do is be thankful that I got this far playing an instrument with four strings. For NPR News, I'm Tom Vitale in New York. The Federal Reserve is moving aggressively to address sky-high inflation. Today, the central bank raised interest rates by half a percentage point. The Fed also telegraphed that more hikes are likely in the months ahead. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Hi, Scott. Good to be with you. This is the biggest rate increase from the Fed in more than two decades. Why has it started to move so forcefully? 
Well, the Fed is really concerned about the soaring prices we've been seeing. You know, prices in March were up 6.6% from a year ago. That's the steepest increase since 1982. And while there are some indications that March may have been the high watermark for inflation, the Fed doesn't want to take any chances. In fact, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell started his post-meeting news conference this afternoon not as he usually does with a rather dry recitation of economic conditions. Instead, he turned to the TV cameras and said he wanted to speak directly to the American people. Inflation is much too high, and we understand the hardship it is causing, and we're moving expeditiously to bring it back down. We have both the tools we need and the resolve that it will take to restore price stability on behalf of American families and businesses. Powell signaled that the Fed is likely to approve two similar-sized rate hikes at its next two meetings in June and July. And while he acknowledged there may be some pain associated with this strong economic medicine, you know, mortgage rates have already jumped, uh, it's going to cost more to get a car loan or carry a balance on your credit card, Powell says that's better than the alternative, which would be to let inflation go unchecked. So families and businesses had to keep worrying about what things are going to cost a month or a year from now. Without price stability, he says, the economy just doesn't work for anybody. Well, speaking of strong medicine, Scott, uh, a lot of forecasters are saying that the Fed has waited so long to deal with inflation that now it's going to have to implement some really punishing rate hikes, and they fear that could lead to a recession. What is Powell saying about that? What the Fed is trying to achieve here is what economists call a soft landing, that is tapping the brakes enough to bring inflation down, but not so much as to bring the economy to a screeching halt. Now, Powell acknowledges that won't be easy. There are lots of challenges like the war in Ukraine or the COVID lockdowns in China, which are adding to inflationary pressures. Many of those are beyond the Fed's control. But Powell does not believe a recession is inevitable. I would say I think we have a good chance to, to have a soft or softish landing or outcome, if, if you will. And I, I'll give you a couple of reasons for that. Uh, businesses are in good financial shape. The labor market is very, very strong. And so it doesn't seem to be anywhere close to a downturn. Powell also notes that a lot of families and businesses managed to save money during the pandemic, and that extra cash now sitting in bank accounts could serve as an additional economic cushion. The stock market has been really volatile in the last week leading up to this meeting today. And so how did investors react to today's news? You know, the market was pretty calm when the announcement of the rate hike first came out. Uh, This was largely in line with what forecasters had expected. But the market soared during the chairman's news conference, especially when Powell said he and his colleagues are not seriously considering an even larger rate hike of three quarters of a percent. Uh, Maybe that would have seemed like uh, hitting the panic button. For whatever reason, investors were really cheered by what they heard today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average jumped more than 900 points. All the major stock indexes were up around 3%. That's NPR Scott Horsley. Thanks very much. You're welcome. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. More gray, damp weather coming. Showers stick around this evening until at least 10 o'clock. Then plenty of clouds staying around 50 degrees. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, inching up to 66 degrees. 52 degrees now in Boston at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bicon Dental Implants, offering discerning dentists and patients short implants, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures, 617-524-3900. New England Botanic Garden at Tower Hill, less than an hour from Boston, welcoming families to its new whimsical garden, The Ramble. More at nebg.org.
and Mass Audubon. Explore nature on May 13th and 14th. Look for birds and make an impact during Birdathon. More at massaudubon.org/birdathon. I'm Tiziana Deering, and I want to share a little something with you. I am happier and better when I feel connected to my community. Radio Boston does that. Our show is where the town hall meets the kitchen table. And starting Monday morning, we go live at 11 a.m. Join me for Radio Boston weekdays at 11 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better together. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. Some Republican-led states are vowing to pass more restrictions on abortions if the U.S. Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster says he'll call state lawmakers into a special session for that purpose. Nick Delacanal from member station WFAE has more. McMaster says he'd be, quote, very pleased if the leaked draft opinion becomes the court's final ruling. He says the state's Republican-dominated legislature could then pass tougher abortion restrictions, and he says he does not support exceptions for rape or incest. The more we can protect life in South Carolina, the better it will be for everybody involved. The Republican governor signed a law last year that effectively prohibits abortions past six weeks. The law is on hold pending a legal challenge. Democrats call it an attack on reproductive rights. There are 13 states, not including South Carolina, that have so-called trigger laws that would ban nearly all abortions almost immediately if Roe is overturned. For NPR News, I'm Nick Delacanal in Charlotte. Ukraine says Russia is now trying to hit targets in the western part of the country. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby. They are attempting to hit what we assess to be critical infrastructure targets uh, out towards the west, um, uh, uh, electrical power, uh, transportation hubs, that kind of thing. Uh, we think this is an effort to try to disrupt the, the Ukrainians' ability to uh, replenish uh, and reinforce themselves. This nearly 10 weeks into a war that's killed thousands, sent millions fleeing and destroyed Ukrainian cities. Wall Street higher by the closing bell after the Fed raised its benchmark interest rates by half a percentage point, as expected. The Dow was up 2.8 percent, the Nasdaq up 3.1 percent, the S&P 500 ahead by nearly 3 percent. For the Dow, that's up 932 points. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A worker who was trapped in the rubble at a construction site in South Boston has been extricated and taken to the hospital after a rescue effort that lasted at least two hours. In all, three workers were hurt when a floor collapsed this afternoon inside the former Edison power plant on Summer Street. Boston Emergency Services officials say they're hopeful that all three will survive. The building sits on a 15-acre lot that's being redeveloped into new housing and businesses. This is the second structural collapse in Boston this year. In March, a construction worker demolishing the government center parking garage died when the floor gave way. Boston City Council is urging the Massachusetts legislature to change the state's civil forfeiture laws. Currently, law enforcement is allowed to seize and keep money and property they suspect is part of a drug crime, even if no one is ever charged or convicted. WBUR's Sarab Dattar has more on the resolution the council passed today. Massachusetts has the country's lowest bar for civil forfeiture. There are two bills pending in the legislature that would reform the rules. These bills would raise the legal standard for authorities to take people's money and property and require more disclosure on how law enforcement spends these funds. City Councilor Julia Mejia, 
offered the resolution after WBUR reported that Boston police used seized funds to buy surveillance equipment. She says it's time for the legislature to pass these bills. These are being held hostage in the state house, and it's important for us to advocate fiercely on the local level to, to push the needle. Mejia says she hopes other communities will join Boston's push for reforms. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Saurav Datar. The state collected $2 billion more than it expected last month. Total April collections were nearly $7 billion. That's nearly 80% more than came in during April of last year. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Russian Icons, opening May 5th. Images of Atheism, the Soviet Assault on Religion. More at museumofrussianicons.org. Bruins and Carolina Hurricanes are in Raleigh to play the second game of their playoff series. Hurricanes won the first game, 7 o'clock start time. Game 25 of the season for the Red Sox tonight as they play host to the Los Angeles Angels for the second game of their three-game set. Start time is 7:10. In the forecast, gray overnight tonight. Showers until about 10 o'clock tonight. Lows just around 50, not too far from where it is right now. Tomorrow, sunshine inching up to 66, 52 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Adrian Florido. Does it feel like everyone you know has COVID right now? For a lot of people, the answer is yes. And that's because in many parts of the country, COVID-19 case numbers are going up and up. Much of that increase is being driven by variants of Omicron. Well, Andy Slavitt thinks that this new wave of growth is giving us a glimpse into what endemic COVID will look like once we get there. Slavitt was a senior advisor to President Biden on COVID and was the head of Medicare and Medicaid in the Obama administration. Andy Slavitt, welcome back to All Things Considered. Great to be here, Adrian. You said in a thread on Twitter that we're getting clues about what COVID will look like when it's an endemic disease. But before I ask why you think that, remind us, what the endemic phase of a disease is and how that is different from the pandemic phase. Well, yeah, let's be clear. We don't know if we're in an endemic phase yet, and we probably won't know till afterwards because I think the best definition of endemic that I've heard is just when the surprises are gone and it becomes predictable. Endemic doesn't necessarily mean everybody's safe. Endemic doesn't necessarily mean people are, are no longer losing their lives. It just means it's following a predictable pattern. And what we don't know, but we may be witnessing, are some clues as to what a predictable pattern will look like when we settle into one. Why is it so important for us to know that we're in an endemic phase, uh, assuming we get there at some point? I think the real question is, what are the tools that we need to have as a country in order to live as normal life as possible? The best news of all is that we have incredible scientific tools, vaccines, boosters, oral therapeutics, and while none of them are perfect on their own, when you combine them with what our own immune system does and the continued kind of improvement of these tools, the layered immunity we have, COVID should become less and less fatal. It will still be dangerous and it's still dangerous for people who are frail, people who are immunocompromised, 
But even in those situations, the tools are better and better. So what we really want to know is, is it going to get any more severe and it's going to get any more frequent? And are the vaccines and tools we have going to continue to work? And if we're in a situation where we need to update our vaccines once or twice a year, we need to be prepared to do that. What are the unknowns out there that, that could change your assessment about how close we're getting to, to an endemic phase of this disease? So scientists talk about this notion of drift versus shift. And what they mean by that is a drift virus would indicate that we will just continue to see more progressions, almost laddering up of new Omicron with 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, 1.4. And a drift is a better scenario than a shift. A shift is where we would get an entirely new Greek letter in this case with completely different mutations and characteristics. And what's better about a drift is that our body is generally speaking forming better immunity in prior versions that protect us against newer versions. And our vaccines will generally speaking be more aligned to what we see next than they would be if we were to see a shift. So the big question is, are we going to be in drift mode and for how long will we be in drift mode? Or are we going to go back to shift mode where we'll see a Delta, an Omicron, et cetera? No one knows the answer. But there are a number of scientists who say that the number of times we'll see a major shift could be pretty rare, could be as, as infrequently as once a decade. As you said, the predictability that comes from the endemic phase will help us figure out what kind of public health measures to use. But I wonder if it'll also discourage people from taking precautions like masks and vaccinations. Well, predictability will be a good thing. You know, if we knew that we were going to see COVID-19 every June and every December, we might not like that, but at least it would tell us that um, we can take the kinds of precautions that we need to take then, and we don't need to take them other parts of the year. What bothers people is feeling like they're taking precautions in periods of time when it doesn't matter. So, you know, we don't give people flu shots in April, May, and June because the, the risk of the flu is quite low then. So if we understand this well enough and it becomes predictable enough, I think you can then create targeted campaigns to say, hey, every time that this happens, these are the precautions we had to take. We had to wear masks. We had to stay away from these types of crowds and these types of situations if we're immunocompromised. But other times of the year, go on, live your life. Things will be more or less safer. I've been speaking with Andy Slavitt. He's a former Biden and Obama administration official, the author of Preventable and the host of the In the Bubble podcast. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank you, Adrian. In Pennsylvania, Governor Tom Wolf, a Democrat, is term limited. And like some other purple states, the race for governor looks neck and neck between Democrats and Republicans. Part of voters' consideration will be this week's leaked draft decision from the Supreme Court on abortion access. From member station WITF, Sam Dunklaw reports. If the U.S. Supreme Court does decide to overturn Roe v. Wade, Pennsylvanians could still access abortion, but with some caveats. Even with Roe, those caveats have been in place for decades, as State House Republican spokesman Jason Gottesman explains. Pennsylvania right now has the Abortion Control Act, uh, and that would be unaffected because it would then be left up to the states to decide, and we already have that law in the books. Pregnant women have to consult with a doctor at least 24 hours before an abortion. And abortions after 24 weeks are only allowed if they're needed because of a sexual assault, incest, or to protect a pregnant person's life. And though Republicans who control the state legislature have recently pushed bills restricting abortion further, Democratic Governor Tom Wolf has held the line by vetoing them all. 
But Wolf is being term limited out of his job this year, and eight Republicans are scrambling for their party's blessing to run for it in this month's primary. I would sign any bill that comes to my desk that would protect the life of, of the unborn. Some candidates for governor, like former Congressman Lou Barletta, have said in TV debates that they would keep Pennsylvania's law in place. And I have uh, made exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. But others, like State Senator Doug Mastriano, say they would not make exceptions. Mastriano says he'd push lawmakers to ban abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. This is a national catastrophe. And so we're going to move with alacrity, with speed on the heartbeat bill, and we're going to get it down. State Attorney General Josh Shapiro, the only Democrat that's running, says he and Wolf are of one mind on bills like that. I will veto that bill and protect the fundamental freedoms of women here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. The Cook Political Report rates the Pennsylvania governor's race as a toss-up, and the idea that anyone could win is what has some voters worried about what would happen if the Roe decision is tossed out. Alyssa McLaughlin, who volunteers for Planned Parenthood, demonstrated on the state capitol steps with that in mind. Voting in this midterm election is really, especially with Governor Wolf leaving, I think that it's really going to make a difference as to whether or not abortion access continues in the state of Pennsylvania or not. In a recent statewide poll, 53 percent of Pennsylvania voters said abortion should remain legal in certain circumstances. Valerie Boland also showed up at the Capitol steps and says she'd rather see the practice banned entirely. She volunteers for Doug Mastriano, one of the Republican candidates. If our government would stop funding abortion and start funding adoption, adoption, we could have adoption. These babies could be put up for adoption to loving families. When there's abortion, there's no chance. Like, you can't change that. Another protester, social worker Beth Diltz, says abortion should be legal in all cases because there are downsides to alternatives, like adoption. I think a lot of people forget that the foster care system doesn't have the capacity to care for these children. Um, there's not enough funding, there's not access. Pennsylvania's primary is less than two weeks away, and a poll last month shows two-thirds of Republican voters haven't picked a candidate. But if the GOP takes the governor's mansion in November, depending on who that is, access to abortion could look very different in Pennsylvania. For NPR News, I'm Sam Dunklaw in Harrisburg. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Europe's desire to stop buying Russian natural gas could mean more gas export terminals along the U.S. Gulf Coast. But that could make Biden administration climate goals harder to achieve. And WWNO's Hallie Parker reports those new plants likely would be built in communities already living with pollution. Southwest Louisiana is a hub for casinos, culture, and petrochemical refining. It's also been battered by hurricanes. The city of Lake Charles was struck by not one, but two hurricanes in 2020. Roychetta Ozane still lives in a FEMA trailer, right next to one of the area's many petroleum plants. The flares are large and so loud, and people can hear them all the way in Lake Charles. So that's the first thing we see in the morning, you know, industry. To drive her six children to school, Ozane passes through an industrial area in the city of Sulphur. It's called Sulphur for a reason. It smells horrible most days. Across the region, she says low-income Black neighborhoods are located next to plants, burdened by those smells and chemicals every day. Ozane works as an organizer for the environmental nonprofit Healthy Gulf. Advocating for the environmental justice communities, President Joe Biden pledged to help. Now, Ozane says residents are making the connection between these fossil fuel plants and climate change. As frustration has grown, Ozane's community meetings have too. 
from just one or two people a year ago to a few dozen. And now they're protesting the prospect of more liquefied natural gas plants. They showed up today here for Commonwealth. That was unheard of. People don't go to hearings around here. They're like, whatever. But they see folks are fighting for them. To export natural gas, it has to be supercooled. And that requires energy. One terminal could emit up to 10 million metric tons of greenhouse gases per year, according to state permits. That's about the same annual footprint as the entire country of Costa Rica. There's already one liquefied natural gas export terminal under construction near the Gulf of Mexico. And at least nine others are proposed just in southwest Louisiana. Some have permits, but they're in limbo without financing yet. However, the Biden administration's push to boost gas exports to Europe to wean countries off Russian gas could bring more construction soon. Even the industry agrees Biden's export goals can be met with the seven plants already operating. But LNG Allies President Fred Hutchison argues even more global demand is coming. We've got these 10 projects that are fully permitted by the U.S. government, shovel-ready, all the way for his contracts. It'll take a few years once the go-ahead decisions are made, but uh, we can do it. The question is, will we do it? Economist Clark williams Derry advocates for a faster transition to cleaner energy at the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. He says those contracts would lock European countries into several more decades of relying on gas, hurting the world's ability to limit global warming. Building new infrastructure without clearly getting rid of or abating problems from the old infrastructure, that's just going to make that problem worse. And community organizer Roysheta Ozane says that's the exact opposite of what environmental justice communities need. If you care about those communities, you want to protect those communities, there's no way that you would be steadily agreeing to bring more things that harm those communities to them. And Ozane says residents aren't letting more plants come without a fight. For NPR News, I'm Hallie Parker in Lake Charles, Louisiana. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Actor Minnie Driver on her new memoir, Managing Expectations About the Messiness of Life. That story is coming up next on WBUR. Checking sports, the Red Sox will put Garrett Whitlock on the mound tonight in the second game of their series against L.A. at Fenway Park, 7-10 game time. Sox are 3-3 three and three in their last six games. Bruins will take the ice in Raleigh for game two of their playoff series with the Carolina Hurricanes. The Hurricanes won the first game. Tonight's game starts at 7 o'clock. Want to stay updated on upcoming WBUR events at City Space and throughout Greater Boston and get first crack at tickets? Sign up for the WBUR events newsletter. Go to WBUR.org slash newsletters. Patchy fog drizzle this evening and overnight tonight. Showers well into the evening. Temperatures right about 50, not too far from where they are now. Tomorrow and Friday should bring relief in the form of sunshine. Temperatures should reach the mid-60s both days. Saturday, more clouds than bright sunshine on Sunday. Weekend highs in the mid-50s. Still 52 degrees now in Boston at 549. WBUR supporters include Red's Best, committed to sustainably sourced fish, shellfish, and sushi from the Boston Fish Pier, delivered to your home or for local pickup. More at redsbest.com. And the ICA, with a place for me. 
celebrating a new generation of artists creating vibrant, figurative paintings. ICABoston.org. So the court has overruled earlier decisions, but the court has in the past done this in the direction of expanding rights. I can't think of an analogy to the court withdrawing a constitutional right, particularly one this significant and particularly one that has been on the books for almost 50 years. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. For actor Minnie Driver, becoming famous was a surreal experience. Or to put it in her words... Becoming famous was like everyone else had taken hallucinogenic drugs and I was the giant talking mushroom in their trip. It was hardly noticeable at first. People would smile in my direction sometimes, but it could have been at something happening behind me. Then... The next thing I knew, a guy was lying in the gutter as I'd get out of my car, trying to take a picture of my vagina. For Driver, fame always presented a bit of what she calls a psychological paradox. You want to be seen, but not that much. Well now, two and a half decades after breaking into Hollywood, Minnie Driver is ready for you to see a little bit more of her. She's written a memoir called Managing Expectations, essays about relationships and the messiness of life, from her childhood in England and Barbados, to her unexpected path into acting, to becoming a single mom to her son, Henry. The book begins with Driver's complicated relationship with her mother, who, after living for 16 years as her father's mistress, left Driver's father, married another man, and tried to make this new family work. It's so interesting picking over the bones of convention and what that means. I mean, in 1976, my mother, who wanted to maintain custody of us, that was the first year a woman could sign for a mortgage without a male co-sign. So remarkable. A judge told her, a male judge said, in order to maintain custody of your kids, you've got to be married, you have to own your own house, and you have to have them in school, which he knew was impossible. Except, you know, my mother, my mother made it possible. Driver says watching her mom try to build a new life around the institution of marriage shaped her own attitude towards marriage. I strangely, for someone who was the product of people who weren't married, I really always wanted to be married, but I think I thought it meant that you were accepted or acceptable. And it's taken a long time to unpick that and to realize that what I really want is to, is to be with this man that I love now forever. I want a party. I want my friends to come together for us to dance and for us to tell stories. And I want that, I want the ritual So many of these stories are about how what we want in relationships evolves as we evolve. I was so struck when I was reading the bit about the mini driver from two and a half decades ago, describe her relationship with Matt Damon. This is right after you filmed Goodwill Hunting. And, you know, I related to that impatience you felt for love and work and happiness to all come together in some shimmering trifecta. But I also understand years later, you know, how very hard that is to find and maintain. I just, I wonder if it's even possible, you know, it's like mm-hmm. to, to, for anything to be 100% all of the time, your work, your love yes. life, yet we have this expectation of ourselves as people to do that. Um, so invariably when I, you know, when I fell in love with my boyfriend now, and 
Henry is happy and healthy. I'm looking around going, oh, my God, something's going to collapse. <laughs> I have those same feelings, yes, about my own life, yes. <laughs> but, I mean, there's always something that's falling apart and there is always something that is going fine. And I believe that is, that is just life. Um, this book also is very much about your relationship to acting and how doing this thing that you love has sometimes resulted in inattention to your inner self, as you wrote, because, you know, you're paid to constantly inhabit other people. So when it comes to just being Minnie, the normal person, when do you feel most in touch with her, that inner self? Well, it took a while to actually feel that that that, that person had currency that was apparently as valuable as being a famous movie star um, because I definitely drank the Kool-Aid and felt like fame and success were going to act as some sort of emotional grout in between all the fragmented parts of my life. But when I did not figure it out but realise um, realize that life just simply had to be more, once I actually paid attention to, to, to creating my own roots. That's when my life changed so much and I could actually love acting as part mm. of this brilliant, um, as this brilliant, oh, I'm going to use some dreadful word like tapestry, but like, <laughs> <laughs> but like some tapestry, you know, that it's, it's full of, it's, that it has, its, it has its wonderful place in amongst all this other stuff, all this other context of being a human being. And that's when yeah. I really, I think, started enjoying it and loving it. Well, I'm so happy to hear you in that happier place. If I may return to your mother, um, I understand that she died while you were writing this book. And when I got to the essay about your mom dying, it, it, it just had such a different feel, a different rhythm from the whole rest of the book. And I was wondering, what was it like for you to be in the middle of writing about long ago memories and then suddenly to be writing about something you were very much still struggling through? To begin with, I was like, well, this book is, this book is done. Like, I can't, I can't finish this book because the whole... Um, I will never be happy again, was my feeling. And yet the funny thing is, um, I just carried on writing. All I could really do was write about her dying, which I knew wasn't fit for public consumption. But there was this idea when, I know this is, stay with me on this analogy. Like yeah. I'm, I'm a surfer. And when you, when you get caught in what's called inside and you have wave after wave pounding on you and you can barely catch your breath and you're held under for a while... All you can do is relax and just know that it is going to pass. And if you can just stay in it and just be as present as you possibly can, you will come out the other side. Hmm. And I suddenly realized that that's what this, this writing around grief was. And if I just kept writing, I would eventually hit sort of the edge of the universe of that particular expression of grief, which is exactly what I did. And then I really didn't know what to do because I was like, well... I'm still not going to be able to go back and write the rest of the book. And my boyfriend so sweetly and brilliantly said, why don't you just write something that makes you happy or makes you laugh? So I wrote the story of he and I meeting. Um, oh, I love that story. 
when he thought he was a CIA agent. Or yeah, I had no, I had no intention of that being in the book. But yeah. what was so brilliant was that writing that story allowed me to go back and be able to fillet the ideas that I could bear speaking about about my mother into an essay, which it is raw and it is different to the other book. But you know what? She was raw and different. And it's righteous in that, in as much as it's, I think, it's as different as she was. Minnie Driver's new book is called Managing Expectations, a memoir in essays. Thank you so much for being with us. I so enjoyed reading this book. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Elsa. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for businesses of any size that comes with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. And from CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, focused on providing holistic financial planning from retirement and investments to taxes and estate planning in the client's best interest. Let's make a plan.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. One more gray, damp day is coming to an end. Showers should stick around this evening and end before 10 p.m. Then plenty of clouds overnight, staying right above 50 degrees. Tomorrow, mostly sunny skies, inching to the mid-60s, staying in the mid-60s for Friday as clouds and sunshine mix it up. Saturday could have more clouds and then bright sunshine back on Sunday. Weekend highs in the mid-50s. 52 degrees now in Boston at 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Farmers to You, an online Vermont farmer's market who believes that you can only trust your food when you know your farmers. Farmers2you.com slash WBUR. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com slash gig. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The last Ukrainians who were left in Mariupol, Ukraine, face a new Russian assault, the latest coming up. Also, the slim prospect of a diplomatic resolution to the war in the eyes of Ukraine's foreign minister. You know, the chances to meet a Russian diplomat negotiating a good faith are equal to meeting a Martian on Earth. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, abortion rights activist Patricia McGuinness died last year at the age of 93. Her ideas started as fringe and became mainstream. She's earlier than the movement that we know of as women's liberation. She She's ahead of everybody. More on the woman who helped change the direction of the entire battle for abortion rights. And on Marketplace this evening, the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates by a half percentage point to try to curb inflation. It's 6.01.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A senior U.S. defense official says Russia is stepping up missile strikes on Ukrainian railroads, electricity, and other critical systems. But as NPR's Greg Myrie explains, the attacks have not disrupted the flow of weapons and other supplies in Ukraine. Russian missiles knocked out power in the western city of Lviv and also hit electrical systems on the railway network in the same region, according to the Ukrainians. The U.S. official says this is part of a Russian effort to limit the delivery of weapons to Ukraine by the U.S. and its allies. But so far, the Russian strikes have had, quote, no appreciable impact. The official says the U.S. has delivered more than 80 of the 90 howitzers it recently promised to Ukraine. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said Tuesday the Ukrainians are already using some of these powerful artillery guns in combat. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. Rhode Island's Supreme Court has upheld a state law guaranteeing the right to an abortion just days after a leaked draft opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court suggested Roe v. Wade could be overturned this summer. Ian Donis from Public Radio has more. In 2019, the Rhode Island General Assembly passed abortion rights legislation and then Governor Gina Raimondo signed it into law. Catholics for Life and other opponents filed a legal challenge, arguing that lawmakers lacked constitutional authority to pass the measure. They appealed to Rodin's top court when a superior court judge rejected their case. Now the state Supreme Court has ruled that legislators were within their rights to approve the abortion law. Two justices did not take part in the decision, including one who voted for the abortion law in her former role as a state senator. In a tweet, the plaintiffs say they are considering appealing the case to the U.S. Supreme Court. For NPR News, I'm Ian Donis in East Providence, Rhode Island. Private employers were hiring fewer workers last month, though it may not have been because they weren't looking. Private payroll processor ADP today saying its monthly employment survey showed private payrolls rising by 247,000. Stocks rallied after the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by half a percentage point, as was widely expected. Here's NPR's David Gura. The Federal Reserve raised interest rates by half a percentage point, the biggest increase in more than two decades as it escalated escalates its fight against inflation, and Fed Chair Jerome Powell said the central bank will consider more half a percentage point increases at future meetings. But what isn't on the table, according to Powell, are larger increases. That was a big relief for investors, and stocks rallied soon after those comments. The Fed will continue to monitor conditions on the ground. There's a lot of economic uncertainty right now from the war in Ukraine to China's crackdown on COVID. But Powell expressed confidence the Fed will be able to slow down the economy enough without tipping it into a recession. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The Dow jumped 932 points today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Work has been suspended at a construction site in South Boston where three workers were injured today and taken to the hospital. A floor collapsed at the old Edison power plant on Summer Street. One of the workers was seriously hurt when he became trapped underneath the collapsed debris. Boston Fire Commissioner Jack Dempsey says it took 100 firefighters more than three hours to remove that third victim. He was removed, uh, life-threatening injuries, and removed to the hospital. Uh, He was conscious at the time. A surgeon was brought to the scene to assist rescue crews extricating the worker. Mayor Michelle Wu went to the site of the collapse. She said she's upset this is the second time in less than two months that there's been a collapse at a construction site in Boston. Every family member of workers across our city need to know that it cannot be a question whether your family member will come home at night, whether they will be safe on the job. 
In March, a worker died when the floor beneath him collapsed as he worked to demolish a parking garage downtown. Massachusetts residents can now more easily access the COVID treatment pill Paxlovid. Today, the Baker administration announced a virtual screening program for adults who test positive for COVID and have symptoms. Previously, people had to go through a doctor to get the medication. This new program allows people to have a telehealth visit with a health care clinician who can then prescribe the medication. You can find out more about the program at masshealth.gov slash COVID telehealth. Again, that's mass.gov slash COVID telehealth. Boston City Council is getting a new member. Yesterday, Gabriella Coletta won the special election for District 1. That's East Boston, the North End, and Charlestown. She will replace Lydia Edwards, who left the council after she was elected to the state Senate. Coletta says she'll make it a top priority to increase the percentage of affordable housing units in new developments. Any new developments or any new units in development should be going from 13% to 20%, at least that should be the floor. And these affordable units should actually be affordable at a spread of uh, area median incomes that reflect the neighborhood. Coletta says she also plans to fight displacement in housing, ensure high-quality education, and push for environmental justice. In the forecast, look for showers well into the evening. Not much change in the temperature overnight tonight, right about 50 degrees. Tomorrow and Friday should have sunny skies, temperatures in the mid-60s. Still holding steady at 52 degrees now in Boston at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. If the Supreme Court does indeed overturn Roe v. Wade, as a leaked draft of a forthcoming opinion seems to indicate, abortion access in the U.S. will change drastically. In many parts of the country, abortion will be against the law, which would essentially return the U.S. to a time that Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts remembers all too well. Here she was speaking to a crowd outside the Supreme Court yesterday. Understand this. I have seen the world where abortion is illegal. And we are not going back. With this in mind, we're revisiting a story we aired in October about the early abortion rights activist Patricia McGinnis. She died last year at the age of 93. McGinnis started her work at a time when, in most places in this country, you could face interrogation by police if you got an abortion. Most people seeking abortions in the U.S. had to go underground for a doctor or secretly perform the procedure on themselves or even leave the country. Some 100,000 women every year, this is California women alone, subject themselves to improperly or illegal abortion. Here's McGinnis giving an interview on the street in 1963. I think that in itself is a rather staggering figure, and I feel great indignation as a woman to think that women have to subject themselves to second-rate medical care for a safe surgical procedure. She was the first person who spoke publicly saying abortion should be completely decriminalized. I'm Leslie Regan, and I'm the author of the book When Abortion Was a Crime. McGinnis, Regan says, would stand on street corners in San Francisco in the early 60s, passing out leaflets to people about abortion classes and even do-it-yourself abortions. How to self-induce, 
and where you could go to get a safe abortion. So she's the first to do that. McGinnis distributed this literature partly to get the information out, but also to try deliberately to get arrested. We made great efforts to point out that we were soliciting you to have abortions. <laughs> we would go around to the whole... In order to be arrested and challenge the law. Well, show people how ridiculous it was that... Remember, this was a time when abortion was illegal everywhere in the U.S., except in rare cases. And by the late 1950s, early 60s, local and state governments were getting aggressive about enforcing these laws. They went after providers, shut down clinics. Seeking an abortion became this clandestine, sometimes dangerous experience. They're blindfolding women. They're telling them to come to a corner where they'll be picked up, blindfolded, driven around until they don't know where they are. And they, they are alone at all times. So the experience for women seeking abortions is extremely frightening. As I pictured what it would have been like to live as a woman during this time, I was fascinated to learn that this wasn't what most of American history was like. You see, during the 17 and early 1800s in the U.S., ending a pregnancy was totally permissible under the law, at least up until a point known as quickening. Quickening is when a woman could feel fetal movement inside of her. And Regan says in the months before quickening, a pregnant person could deliberately self-induce a miscarriage without any penalty. Even the Catholic Church at the time did not condemn this practice. There were literally domestic guidebooks that describe various ways to do this. It's really something that is shared information and it's quiet. It's not talked about. It's not debated. Exactly. There wasn't this nationwide conversation about whether that was ending life. There isn't a public debate. It's just part of commonplace health care. But eventually, states start outlawing abortion in the mid-1800s. And then the legal landscape begins to shift even more in the 20th century. As women's rights movements grow, crackdowns on abortions accelerate. Law enforcement agencies intensify efforts to catch abortionists in the act, interrogating women suspected of seeking abortions. This was the world Pat McGinnis grew up in, a woman who knew from a very early age that she never wanted to have children. She grew up in an unhappy home with a mother who never seemed to like being a mom. She had many frustrations, which she often took out on us. So you saw lots of conflict? Oh, yes. She later goes through three illegal abortions of her own, two of which were self-induced. I mean, as McGinnis told her boyfriend once... All I wanted was bed fun. Bed fun. And that, that I did not want babies. I only wanted bed fun. <laughs> you were clear in your mind about this. I was fairly clear. Yeah. <sighs> Trying to leave her Oklahoma past behind, McGinnis joins the Army. She trains as a surgical technician, and that's when Lily Loofborough, who profiled McGinnis for Slate, says McGinnis saw women injured from botched abortions or forced to give birth, even when they didn't want to have a baby. And it was all truly horrifying for her. And uh, she said to me more than once that that was really the thing that radicalized her, was seeing sort of the gamut of things that women have to go through in the name of irreversible biology that nobody lets them opt out of. McGinnis plunges into activism after the army. She moves to San Francisco, and at first, her advocacy starts with smaller stuff, like collecting signatures to reform abortion laws. But then pretty quickly, she gets to a point where she's like, 
Forget reforming these abortion laws. Those reform laws aren't going to work. Let's abolish those laws. We need to argue for repeal. Let's repeal every law that criminalizes abortion. Leslie Regan says this idea, repealing all laws that criminalize abortion, it's an idea that may feel commonplace today. But back then, in the early 60s, this idea is what made Pat McGinnis a radical. She's earlier than the movement that we know of as women's liberation and when the major women's organizations like now also endorse the legalization of abortion. She She's ahead of everybody. So she was pro-abortion in the most explicit way, in a way that Planned Parenthood refused to be. And so that's why she said, "I made we made Planned Parenthood respectable. And McGinnis and her group do something that's pretty revolutionary. We got together names of doctors, and we had at the very top of this, in large letters, this whole thing was mimeographed, <laughs> large letters, are you pregnant? She puts together a list, a special list, Lily Loofborough says, that could make safe abortions possible, even for people living in a country where it's basically illegal. That meant basically putting together a Yelp (laughs) inventory of doctors outside the country who it was safe for women to go to. This list contains not just names of doctors, but their fees, also descriptions of the procedure. Regan says McGinnis and her group acted sort of like a feminist public health agency. They wanted to make sure the providers followed certain standards of practice. You have to wash your hands, you have to use sterile equipment, you have to disinfect the room. The U.S. woman generally was quite naive as to whether someone was a physician or someone was a specialist. They didn't know the questions to ask. They knew that they were desperate. They want to make sure that this is being done in a medically appropriate manner. The group would try to enforce these standards by asking women to fill out surveys after the fact, and bad actors would be removed from the list. But sometimes, Regan says, after the fact was too late. For example, one woman who had used the list claimed later that a specialist had raped her. The really interesting thing as, you know, somebody looking at this later is the way that they handled it. Instead of immediately taking that doctor off the list and warning people that, you know, he had assaulted somebody, do not see him, they sent a letter um, saying that they were very concerned and they did not want him to do anything like that again. Um, it they took... simply admonished the doctor. Yes. And remarkably, the group didn't remove that person from the list until a second woman claimed that that same specialist had raped her. Now, we don't know how many women were harmed as a result of relying on the list. There very well could have been other accounts. But Lily Loofborough says there's no question what Pat McGinnis and her group were at least trying to do in their work. This was really the way to return power to women, even if it was hard, even if it was painful, and even if it was scary. She thought it was crucially important to actually return some of that power to the people concerned because women had been reduced to an almost infantile state by a medical community that thought that, like, you know, the authorities should be making those decisions for them. This fundamental principle Pat McGinnis lived by, advocated by, this principle that decisions about your body belong to you and not to some doctor or lawmaker, that principle eventually becomes a given in the whole abortion rights movement. Pat McGinnis the Maverick 
becomes the mainstream. And yet, she remains an obscure figure in the history of the reproductive rights movement. I asked Loofborough, why was that, even after all these decades? She was not an attention seeker or a credit seeker. And she did not make particular common cause, to my surprise, with the feminist movement in general. Her strategy was blunt. Um, and I think that I think that may have prevented her from being known as like the activist superstar that she really was. I mean, she was not Gloria Steinem. At one point, Loughborough was photographing McGinnis for the profile she wrote and asked her to pose with anything she liked. She went out back into her backyard and, and came back with a shovel and a pitchfork. And the pitchfork was just incredible. And so she's just standing there in her front yard with this pitchfork, like reenacting American Gothic in the most <laughs> incredible way. <laughs> I mean, what a symbol to choose a pitchfork yeah. for your profile. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Major gains on Wall Street today. The Dow rose more than two and three quarters percent, 932 points. It closed at 34,061. S&P pulled in 3 percent to close at 4,300. The Nasdaq surged more than 3 percent to close at 12,965. All the details coming up in just about 10 minutes on Marketplace. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, helping transform your outdated, unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. And Celebrity Series, presenting cellist Sheku Kane Mason and pianist Isida Kane Mason at Symphony Hall this Saturday. Learn more at celebrityseries.org. Moderna's stock rose nearly 6% in trading today. That after the biopharma company and COVID vaccine maker reported a net income of $3.7 billion, blowing past Wall Street expectations. It's more than triple the amount from the same period of last year. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Summer semester starts June 6th, semesteroff.com. And Clark, where you can begin your kitchen project by learning about Sub-Zero and Wolf appliances in interactive showrooms in Boston and Milford. More at clarkliving.com. Patchy fog and drizzle into the evening hours. Not much change in the temperature overnight, right about 50 degrees. For tomorrow and Friday, should have sunshine. Beautiful days, temperatures in the mid-60s. Then for Saturday, more clouds. Bright sunshine on Sunday. Weekend highs should be in the mid-50s. Holding steady at 52 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Harvard Radcliffe Institute. Animated by a legacy of promoting inclusion and a commitment to expanding human understanding, join Rachel Maddow, Donna Shalala, and others to explore education access and honor the trailblazing civil rights advocate Sherilyn Eiffel, May 27th, radcliffe.harvard.edu slash events.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Two months, one week, and three days. That is how long since Russia invaded Ukraine. The war, of course, grinds on. The toll in lives lost and physical destruction has been catastrophic. And if anything, it's harder to make out how or when it might end than it was back on February 24th, the day of the invasion. Our next guest is one of Ukraine's most senior officials, the foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba. I first met and interviewed him in Kyiv right before the war. Earlier today, we reached him again at his office, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Kyiv, and I asked about the latest developments in another part of Ukraine, the devastated southern city of Mariupol. More than 160 civilians were evacuated this week. There are reports today that Russian forces have breached the Azovstal steel plant, that they are inside. Can you confirm? I have... Uh probably the most reliable source from Mariupol, Azovstal. Mm -hmm. It is one of the Ukrainian officers who is locked up at Azovstal together with his uh, army fellows and uh, civilians. And usually he texts me or he calls me in the evening uh, to update on the developments. The last message that I received from him was last night. And I haven't heard from him since. I pray that uh, everything is fine. And uh, I'm really looking forward to receiving the message or a call tonight. And he will tell me that everything is fine with him. How many people are still inside this plant? Uh, it's hard to say. Hundreds uh, of civilians, yeah, mostly children and uh, women, and uh, more than a thousand uh, Ukrainian soldiers. But it's true that they get bombed every day. It's true that wounded soldiers uh, die because of the lack of proper treatment and because of the new bombings. Yeah. And they die after, uh, under the roof of the destroyed shelter. So it's, it's a tragedy when you escape death once, but it reaches you uh, from second attempt. I mean, this this plant is it's the last holdouts. It's you said more than a, uh, yes. something like a thousand yes. uh, soldiers and then hundreds of civilians. Russia says it has captured the city of Mariupol. Has it? No, no. Until until Azovstal holds, Mariupol holds. Mariupol is in Ukrainian hands. You're saying? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. As long as we continue resistance, it means that Russia has not captured the city, whatever their propagandists uh, tell us, uh, tell everyone. But the problem is that Russia ruthlessly attacks Azovstal, trying to kill everyone who is there, destroy it, and present uh, Mariupol as their huge success before 9th of May. Uh, the 9th of May, the, the Victory Day celebrations that Russia yeah. is gearing up for. Um, let me turn to the battle for the East. Um, Pentagon officials here in Washington say they do see Russia making progress, um, but they say it's minimal, um, that the Russian offensive thus far is anemic, is plotting. That's their words. Do you agree with that assessment? And, and how long can Ukrainian forces put up that kind of resistance? Okay, I want you to understand uh, the nature of the battle for Donbas. It looks this way. There is a line that Ukrainian army holds. Trenches, defensive positions. Russia throws on, this, uh, on these lines artillery fire, attacks from the air, 
and shells. Then once they believe that uh, they killed everyone and they can advance, they send tanks with infantry to take over our positions. Uh, to their surprise, almost killed Ukrainian soldiers dig out from the trenches and start shooting back. And we throw them back because the morale of Russian army is very low. They're not ready to fight. And to the contrary, our soldiers are ready to uh, defend, to stand by every inch of our land until death. I do need to ask about uh, unexplained fires, explosions at strategic locations in Russia. Russia's biggest chemical plant just burned down uh, for reasons not known. Is Ukraine attacking inside Russia? Whatever Ukraine does, Ukraine always defends itself. This is a defensive war. And uh, we defend our country from an aggressive country that is much bigger and stronger than us. But again... Striking inside uh, Russia would be offensive, though, not defensive, no? No, I'm not saying it was... I'm not saying we are, we are attacking uh, uh, objects in Russia. What I'm saying is that whatever we do is aimed at defending the country. Imagine theoretically that uh, a missile is heading towards targeting Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And we have theoretically the capacity to shoot it down. Should we wait until it reaches uh, our, uh, our city? because we cannot shoot it down in the Russian skies. If we had the possibility to shoot them down, we would, uh, we would, we would use them because the eventual target is in Ukraine and we have to save people uh, and our own houses. And I hear you using the word theoretically. So you are uh, not confirming or denying what, what is uh, targeting these locations no, no. in Russia. I think it's the military. I think it's the military guys who have to confirm or deny uh, hitting uh, this or that target. My point to you is that we are fighting against the enemy who is much stronger and has more resources than we do. And everything we do is aimed at saving, uh, at defending and saving Ukraine. We have no aggressive plans towards Russia. We have no intention to invade Russia. We have no intention to uh, cross the border between our countries. Everything we do is aimed at one thing, to defend our country and our right to exist. So that brings me to the last thing to ask you. You're a diplomat. As a diplomat, do you still hold out hope that diplomacy can end this war? Of course, every war ends with diplomacy. This is how history, this is how history works. In the end, uh, it's diplomats who have to sit down and draft and sign an agreement. That would require Russia to negotiate in good faith, though. Do you believe that is possible? You know, the chances to meet a Russian diplomat negotiating in good faith are equal to meeting a Martian on, on Earth. But uh, still, we have to be ready to negotiate with them, to defend our positions. But as a diplomat, I have to make sure that my country approaches these uh, negotiations in the strongest position possible. And the strengths of our position will depend on the level of qu and quality of sanctions imposed against Russia, on the amount and quality of weapons supplied to Ukraine, on the level of isolation of Russia in the world, and on the ability of Ukrainian army to push Russian army back. If we, I can do the three, the three first things to help our army to do the force. 
And as a diplomat, I'm focused on this. I'm ready to negotiate, but I want my country to be very strong in those negotiations. Dmitry Kaleba, he is the foreign minister of Ukraine. He joined us from the capital, Kiev. Foreign Minister, thank you. Great to speak with you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where specialists in your type of cancer create personalized care plans just for you. Learn more at youhaveus.org. BU's Pardee School of Global Studies, where students build a holistic understanding of global affairs. Learn more at bu.edu slash school. And the Jennifer and Robert Waldron Civic Fund, supporting education, equity, and truth.